0: scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel, the 17th chapter. It's the familiar story of David and Goliath. Uh, Before we come to this passage, let us first join together in prayer. Gracious God, because You are God, it is Your Word and Your Word alone that is life for us, and because You are gracious, we come with hopeful expectation that you will speak to us even now, even here. We are here, oh God, we are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So you remember the story. Uh, Goliath, the giant of the Philistine army, comes out each morning clad in armor from head to toe. He mocks the armies of King Saul, the king of Israel, and Saul's armies shake in fear. David enters the story because he's got older brothers who are actually part of the king's army, and David is sent to bring them refreshments. So he arrives on the scene, something like the guy who sells peanuts at the Royals game, and when he does, he's really done his job. But David starts asking questions. What happens to the guy who slays the Philistine? It's at that point in the story that we pick up the reading, beginning with verse 28. So let us listen for God's word for us. David's eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have just come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? It was only a question. Turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and and he sent for him. David said to Saul, "Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine." Saul said to David, "You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for." You are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, but he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Well, I didn't read the end of the story. I imagine you remember how it ends. But in this season, when we are defined by multiple crises, I wanted to make sure we recognize this astonishing moment in the story when David, the shepherd boy, gets to define, gets to interpret what's going on. I say it's astonishing because in this moment in his life, giving his lack of status as a shepherd boy, the the last and youngest of of a whole group of brothers, David's the last one who should be talking. That's what Eliab says. Eliab is David's eldest brother, and he says, what are you doing here? I know the evil in your heart. You've just come to to chat things up, and here we are fighting the battle of our lives. It's between the armies of Saul and the Philistines, and you're no soldier. You're just a shepherd. You You should be quiet, and you should go home. Now look, as an elder brother myself, Eliab's Eliab's reaction seems kind of reasonable. Who wants their baby brother, who's never seen the day of battle, chatting strategy in camp? But somehow, and I imagine it's only by the grace of God, David not only talks, but he's listened to. And this shepherd boy has a different interpretation, a different narrative, a different story to tell of what's going on in this moment. He says, I can do this. Because this really isn't a battle between the armies of Saul and the Philistines. This is God's moment. Because every moment is God's moment. And what I know is the God who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from this Philistine. This is God's moment. Nobody else saw that. This is the first time God is mentioned in the story. David has a different interpretation of what's going on, and this interpretation comes from a surprising source. And this amazing moment is followed by an even more amazing moment, a moment that in my estimation is King Saul's best moment of his reign. For unlike elder brother Eliab, the king listens. Sometimes God is discerned most clearly when people of power listen. Saul listens. He's clumsy at it. He says to David, well, sure, but put on my armor. If you're going to do this, at least do it the way I would do it. But David said, it doesn't fit me. I can't rely on that. I have to rely on the living God. You know, these are unsettling days, days defined by pandemic and pain and protest. And one of the unsettling things that is happening is it seems to me there are a lot of Davids out there who have their own interpretation of what's going on right now. They've got their own story to tell, and it's different from the majority narrative. You know, we, we have a story of who we are as people, who we are as a church, who we are as a nation but some are saying i got a different interpretation of what's really going on right now and i think we need to be a little bit like Saul here we need to listen it's time it's time to hear voices that that the culture doesn't usually privilege to speak so i i put on my mask and I went to protest. I socially distanced pretty well, but I was there. Some of you have been to these. Many of our staff have been to these. There were black and Asian and Hispanic, Latina, Latina. There were white folks there. There were police and National Guard standing watch. There were lots of young people. Thank God for the young people. There was some anger It was genuine and expected. There was some pain. There was a profound fatigue, a weariness with what Condoleezza Rice has called America's birth defect, systematic racism. And there were chants and signs that said, Black Lives Matter. You know, I, I think that phrase, black lives matter, I think it confuses some of us. I think it rubs some of us the wrong way. You say, what, what do you mean black lives matter? All lives matter. Yeah, they do. Of course they do. But let me tell you how I see this right now, and, and you may see it differently, but, but hear me out. When it comes to engaging the power of our culture, it's not just law enforcement, it's it's the whole judicial system, it's the education system, it's it's providing health care, it's certainly the economy and job market. When it comes to engaging the power structure of culture, that power structure doesn't engage all lives in a just matter, in a just fashion. The data is overwhelming. Not all lives are treated the same. So in theory, all lives matter. But in practice, in practice, they don't all matter the same. So I understand Black Lives Matter movement is saying it's the practice that we need to pay attention to. That's where it matters. So when we say, well, wait a minute, all lives matter, we may be sounding a little bit like older brother Eliab, who's saying, who are you to challenge my narrative? This has happened to us before. It's happened to us before. There was a time, there was a time, It's before me, but there was a time here in this sanctuary where your preachers would proclaim the love of God for all men that's what we said. The love of God is for all men. The Bible said it just that way. But some women, some women and some men too, said, wait a minute. The love of God's not just for men. It's for men and women. We, we ought to say that. It's for men and women. And our response, some of you will remember this, our response was often, well, When we say it's the love of God is for all men, we mean men and women because all men matter. That's what we said. When we say that Jesus died to save mankind, we mean men and women. And it's the very moment that we were saying that, In practice, women couldn't get jobs that men could get. And if they did, they didn't get paid the same for the same work. Still true even now. And if they did show up, they better not show any anger or expect to go uninterrupted if they were speaking. And so some women, courageous women, and some men started saying, Dear Eliab, We need to say it differently. You can say all men matter, but when the practice doesn't say that women matter the same, we need to say it differently. They had a different interpretation of what was going on in the moment. And you know what? We got better when we started listening to that. We need to say black lives matter because in so many places in our nation, they don't matter the same. I heard this from a friend of mine, Reverend Danny Murphy. I can't remember the last time I've seen Danny. We were in South Carolina together. He's still a Presbyterian pastor there. He's He's an African-American pastor. His brother is in law enforcement. And and recently, Danny wrote a piece. He said he was going to take a walk in his neighborhood with a friend. And before they left the driveway, he said, no, I got to go back in the house. I can get my driver's license. His friend said, you need a driver's license to take a walk? He said, no, I need a driver's license in case one of my neighbors sees me walking in this neighborhood and gets suspicious and calls the police and I have to prove that I'm walking in my own neighborhood. He didn't invent that out of thin air. It had happened to him. I had no idea what happens when the stress of knowing that your skin color makes you suspicious as soon as you step out of your house. Maybe you don't even have to do that, and that's the burden you, bear, you carry your whole life. I have no idea what that does to one's mental health, to one's faith, to one's physical health. If I understand it, that's why people of color have a different story to tell, and, and we'll be better if we can listen. And some will say, yeah, but it's, it's not fair, Tom, because, because they're talking about the police, and, and there, are, there are a lot of good police officers. Of course there are, and, and, and many are in this church family, and I hold them in the highest respect. Just a few weeks ago, It was common every night in New York City in the heart of our pandemic at 7 o'clock at night, people would go out on their balconies or lean out their windows, and they would pound pots and pans as an expression of gratitude and praise for first responders, which included police who were putting their lives at risk to serve those who were compromised by this virus. They deserve that praise but it's more complicated than about good and bad people. This is about power and powerlessness. And power is not shared equally in the world. It never has been. It probably never will be, which is why making moral choices is imperative. There are different kinds of power. There's economic power. There's political power. There's cultural power. But one thing that is shared and history has taught us there's a very strong temptation for the powerful to believe that they hold that power because they deserve it, because they somehow have earned it, because they are better, maybe morally better, and by implication those who lack power are undeserving, and morally inferior. It is a seductive power to assume that we are powerful because we are good, rather than recognizing any power we have brings an additional responsibility to pursue that which is good. I think that's what this moment is about. There's a moment in the novel Poisonwood Bible, Orleana Price, she is the courageous mother of four daughters. She says at one moment, she says, when push comes to shove, a mother loves her children from the bottom up. It's the child who is sick. It's the child who is afraid. It's the child who is hurt. It is the child who is in need who gets the mother's attention in that moment because in that moment that is the child that matters. I think every mother loves like that. And I think God does too. I've been at this a long time. I've preached on racism with you many times, and in other congregations as well. 30 years ago, I went back to school to get a master's degree in what's called black theology. It's engaging the Christian story from the black uh, context. And even with all of that, these issues still leave me feeling like King Saul a bit clumsy. But that clumsiness… Uh, that clumsiness is what reveals it's all the more important for us to not let this moment pass without engaging it as faithfully we, as we know how. And I think in part that means we need, we need to be a little bit like Saul and listen. Don't check out. When the other voices interpret the moment in ways that we would not interpret it, to hang in, even when the narrative is, is questioning some of the things we assume to be true and right, recognize there might be a little Eliab in us that wants to say, now, who are you to challenge my narrative of the truth? That's the very moment be more like King Saul in his best moment and listen even if we're a bit clumsy at it because of this I am confident we are much more likely to discern what God is about in this moment and discern what God needs from us if we listen pray with me.